0: I invite you to the book of Colossians. We're going to be looking at a section in Colossians 3, but really gaining some direction from the entire book. I'd like to begin to read at verse 15 and for us to just take in here briefly the message of this great, profound book that exalts Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1. Notice here verse 15 says of Christ that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that is the preeminent One. By Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. That is the first one to rise from the dead, never to die again. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's reflect for just a moment. We gather on this Lord's Day to rejoice together that we are a people reconciled to God. The Bible teaches that before we trusted the Gospel and were made alive in Christ, we lived in the domain of moral darkness. We were alienated from God and hostile to Him, entrenched in evil deeds. We were not His people. We were shut out from the presence of God but by God's sovereign grace alone, He opened our eyes to see that Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, was sent to earth to live a sinless life and then to die in our place to pay the penalty of our sins. We saw then that rising from the dead, Jesus provides forgiveness and reconciles sinners to God who receive His gift of salvation from sin and from death. So we gather today, notice it in chapter 1 and verse 13, we gather today because God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Those who gather here that have placed that faith in Christ's death and resurrection gather in this way. We have been delivered from darkness And once we were, chapter 2, verse 13, dead in our transgressions, in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to His cross, taking our sins and paying the penalty in our place. This is why we gather. This is why we rejoice together as God's people. We have been reconciled to God. Now, the implication of this is that it changes everything in our lives. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, you have been united in His death and in His resurrection, if this is the case, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In my moral darkness, I may have heard of Christ. I don't care at all that He lives today and reigns from heaven. I don't see things from that perspective. But having come to be reconciled by Christ, we are now to do, as chapter 3, verse 1 says, to see Him seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, setting our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Does that mean that we should disengage from this world and walk around with our head in the clouds, as some would call it? Is that what it means? No, it means that we live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, raised to new life in union with the risen and conquering Christ. It means, chapter 3, verse 3, that we've died. We're dead to self as we once knew it. The old man has been crucified with Christ. It means that we are dead, chapter 3 and verse 3, and that our life is now hidden with Christ in God. The life we live here on this earth in relationship to one another. It means then that we strive in the Spirit to set our minds on this new life in Christ. If you're following me, you're with me, and your heart soars as you think of what Christ has done, then, naturally, chapter 3, verse 5, we seek to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. Such as sexual immorality such as impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness and idolatry and the like, as we work our way down and just allow your eyes to filter through the text. Verse 8, anger and malice, slander, obscene talk, not lying to one another. Verse 9, we put on the new self, putting off the old self, which was crucified with Christ. It means then there's a lot of things we need to root out of our lives, and we want to. It means on the other side that there's a lot of things that we need to put into our lives. That's verse 12. Then put on as chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another. Letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, verse 15, singing a new song. And this then all works its way to verse 17 very naturally that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is our life in Christ. This is why we gather as His people. This is how we live and how we think. To do everything in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Which means what? Every word. Every deed oriented to honor the character to submit to the Lordship of the reigning Christ. And one of the profound implications of such an orientation is that it will radically influence every human relationship that we experience. Not a head in the clouds with a mind set on eternity such that we ignore everyone around us. But rather, the Lordship of Christ filtering every relationship that we enter. It is that matter now that the Apostle takes up and we will slow down and consider very carefully. Let me lead you through this text, verses 18 down through 4.1, just by way of overview. First of all, we will find three couplets of common human relationships. I've tried to get a running head start into them as to what this book is saying. But now let's just narrow down here and see that we have, first of all, wives and husbands, verses 18 and 19. The second relationship is children and fathers, and the third is slaves and masters. What I'd like you also to see before we read through it little by little is just if you would note here a very consistent theme. Verse 18, we find the phrase in the Lord. The Lord speaks of the sovereign power and reign of Christ. He is the Lord. And this theme carries through We find it also in verse 20. Do you see it there? This pleases the Lord. Verse 22, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, as for the Lord. Verse 24, from the Lord, you are serving the Lord Christ. In chapter 4 and verse 1, we miss this in the English, but it speaks of the masters who have a Master in heaven. Same word. Same Greek word. The Lord's small l who have a Lord, capital L, in heaven. Let me add to this preparation one more idea, and that is the family structure of ancient Christians. So this letter is being written to believers at the church of Colossae. What did their life look like? It was a bit distinct from ours. Many of the families of believers at Colossae would have included slaves in their family, many of whom functioned almost like a family member. Let me say then, secondly, another distinction. There are not only extended families and not only slaves, but there was what we might call patricentrism, Daniel Bloch's term. As Kostenberger explains, the husband or the father functioned as the central hub of the family from which everything radiated out like spokes on a wheel. So their families were what we would call patrilineal. That is, the descent was traced through fathers and their sons. It was patrilocal, that is, when a son married, he brought the woman to his father's household and clan. It was patriarchal, that his fathers were vested with authority to exercise responsible leadership. The world in which we live is somewhat distinct from all of this orientation, but we need to bring it to the text to really understand what's being said. So, with this preparation, the theme of the supremacy and the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ filtering through and affecting every relationship that we have on earth, we move to that first relationship, and that is between the husband and wife. Wives, verse 18, Paul writing to the Colossian church, someone reading the scroll in the assembly, addresses the wives and says this, "...submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord." What do we make of this word submission? First, let's acknowledge we have some serious hurdles in our way. The first is the English language. There's a specificity that is lost in the translation here with this Greek word. And the second is our culture. Whenever we hear the word submit, in the context of a human relationship, we think what? Abuse or oppression someone is wielding authority in a harmful way. These negative roadblocks we must overcome. But as we look at this Greek word, it says that the wife is to willingly position herself in a subordinate, supportive role under her husband's God-assigned leadership of the family. Those are strange words in this world. They're not spoken in public They're not even spoken in private. They're even denied by many Christians. But as we are honest with the Word and its meaning, this is the idea. It indicates, the Greek word, that this is something that she must do. Not something anyone can force her to do or should even try to. The word does not mean to submit to her husband that she is to take up her place among the other slaves in the larger family. It does not mean she is to be seen as inferior to her husband. It does not mean she will never disagree with him or that when disagreeing, he must always get his way. None of that is the idea of the Word. But why is it saying this to you? If you are going to follow the counsel of God, you will see it as God's grace to you to rest in your husband's headship And to see Him as the irreversible reference point of your daily life. You will not see yourself in competition with Him. As your own franchise out there striving to be all that you can be apart from Him. But you will orient your life to Him as your husband, as His helper, as His completer. You will choose to follow and support the direction that he believes is right for your family, knowing that God has placed upon him a distinct responsibility to lead. You may be sharper than he is. You may be quicker than he is. You may be, in some respects, a better initiator. You may be more decisive. And we certainly hope that you smell better than he does on most occasions. There's all kinds of ways in which you may be ahead of Him. You may even be more godly than He is. But you have also been redeemed by the Lord Christ. And that changes everything. Notice what it says in verse 18. This is fitting in the Lord. This is what is right in In Christ's sight. This is how He has brought the relationship together. So you have been redeemed by Jesus. It's fitting in Him that you would submit to your husband in this sense. Fitting for women united to Christ. How is it fitting? First of all, it fits God's creative design that we find in Genesis and flowing through Scripture. Secondly, it recognizes Christ's Lordship and the deliverance from self-centeredness that He has affected in your life as a believing wife. Thirdly, it's fitting in that it imitates Jesus Himself. Who God, very God, submits to the Father not an evil word. It's not an oppressive word. It's a word of relationship saying that one is seen to be in a position of leadership and the other is seen to be as one who is supporting that function. So a husband is assigned by God to lead his home. His wife is to order her life so that her husband leads as freely and ably and honorably as possible. And as a wife, you may stop and say, I wonder if I do that. Do I complete my husband or am I fundamentally his competitor? My own franchise out there doing my own thing. I'm really not oriented toward him. Am I lending aid, supporting him as one God will hold accountable to lead our home? I wonder, maybe the answer would be simply to ask him. In an honest, quiet moment, in a teachable moment for both of you, ask Him. His answer may not be infallible, but it may be quite insightful. And I think when we look at what God's counsel is to families, one of the most tragic situations is to find that man who somewhere gets alone with a friend that he can level with and says something like this, I am not leading my family in the direction that I believe we are supposed to go. But if I did, I would pay for it. My wife would make me miserable. That's a horrible conversation to hear. Now, indoctrinated in feminism, even many Christians now see this command, wives submit to your husbands, as what Douglas Moo calls reinforcement of the patriarchal status quo. That is, it's little more than codification of the oppression of women by their husbands. Before we jump on that common bandwagon, we need to stop and consider verse 19. This is severed from the whole conversation. And that is how God instructs now husbands Having said to wives, honor the leadership of your husband, understand his calling from God, come alongside to support, encourage, and allow him to move forward. And husbands, you, verse 19, are to love your wives. As there is a misunderstanding of what it means to submit, so there is really no capacity for an unbelieving culture to understand the command to love with agape love. Husbands are to love their wives. The biblical emphasis then falls not on power or position of husbands and fathers, but upon their responsibility and upon their accountability. Christian men are to provide for their families. They are to provide security. They are to provide stability. They are to surround them with self-giving, self-sacrificing love to pour out their lives for them. In a thousand ways, on a thousand days, they will not get their way. They will not exercise their rights but will gently and patiently invest themselves for the good of their wives. Now husbands, let's come to terms with this. Our union with Christ steers us to order our lives so as to live with our wives to lead them gently and to lead them decisively. Every day we are to live for them as dead to self and alive in Christ. Notice verse 19, in contrast to husbands loving their wives, we are not to be harsh with them. It can be very easy for most men to be insensitive, impatient, irritable, surly, crass, bitter with our wives. In word, in deed, in orientation. But in Christ, we will put such tendencies to death. We will seek to root out such harshness And again, the word emphasizes particularly such bitterness toward them, such surliness. I'll say it's perhaps one of my most common sins as a husband. I'll share just a little scene from the Miller home, but recently Beth misunderstood something that I said and it very much hurt her that I would be that harsh and mean. Well, it took us a long time to work through the fact that it was a misunderstanding. She didn't understand what I meant. End of story, we move on. Well, not for me. As God worked in my heart, I realized why did she respond with hurt instead of with shock? And obviously the reason is because there is a pattern of harshness. At times. Otherwise, she'd be stunned that I would say something that was harsh. She wasn't stunned. And it was a rebuke to me to realize I must watch my words, I must watch my orientation. Now, let me assure you, we have a tremendously warm relationship, and loving words are common in our home and in our relationship. But harshness particularly for men, is an ever-lurking temptation that has great potential to harm our wives and to destroy their confidence in our love. And you may know in your heart of hearts that you love your wife, that you're oriented toward her for good, but she hears what you say and she senses the lack of gentleness and compassion. and She may not know what's in your heart. Husbands, we must put this to death. She is a precious vessel that God has given to you. Orient your life to love her to the death. Do nothing that is harsh. I wonder, we ask, is my wife thriving, rejoicing in my love, or is she burdened down with my impatient and reckless words and actions, well, in a quiet, teachable moment, sit down with her and ask her. Ask her what she thinks. And listen. She may not be infallible in her opinion, but what she says may be very, very revealing. Take it to heart. Why? This is the reason. Jesus Christ reigns in glory. Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is the preeminent One. He is the firstborn among the dead. He is the head of the church. And that relationship with my heart is to transform every human relationship. It's to transform the way that I relate to my husband, that I relate to my wife. Christ is Lord of this home. And that changes everything. It changes the parent-child relationship as well. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Obey your parents. It's not natural for wives to submit to their husbands. This doesn't happen naturally. It's not natural for husbands to love their wives as God ordains. And it's not natural for children to obey their parents. This isn't meant to be something easy or simple or something that you just say, I can't wait to obey my parents. No, it's going to be something that is a challenge. But what is the motivation, children? God is talking to you here in the text of Scripture. He says, this pleases the Lord. So again, it's the Lordship of Jesus that radically changes everything. Disobedience to parents is incompatible with the new life that we have in union with Christ. Now let's boil this down, kids. Kids those of you who are under the authority of your parents, one of the hardest things that you will have to deal with as a child, certainly if you are living in anything of a loving home, one of the hardest things that you're going to have to deal with is when your parents tell you to do something you really don't want to do or they tell you to stop something you really want to do. That's one of the most difficult challenges you're going to face. There will stands up against your will, what they want pulls out a sword with what you want. In that situation, what God is saying to do is put down your sword. Set it down. Let it rest. He wants you in those situations to honor your parents. To do what they've asked you to do or stop what they've asked you to stop. This does not mean that what they ask is always wise. It does not mean that it will always be fair. It does not mean that they will always be as considerate as they ought to be. In fact, sometimes a father, mother may have the same kind of harshness that God is speaking against here. But when they issue a command that does not clearly violate God's will, you need to realize that you have a choice to make. That choice is to obey your parents. But even more, that choice is to obey God. That's the choice that is before you. When the swords are raised, will against will, God wants me to put the sword back in its sheath and to honor my parents' direction. To do so out of love for Jesus Christ. Now, when I just said that there, what hit you? It might be children in the home that you say, I really don't care to please Jesus. I me, mean, honestly speaking, that's not a motivation to me to relate to my mom. My dad in such a way that pleases Christ. I don't really care. I really don't want to please my parents. I don't want to please Jesus. I mean, just to be honest about it. If that's how you initially responded, it's something you need to really think about because God puts in the heart of His born-again children a desire to please Him. If you have no desire to obey your parents and no desire to please God, it may well be that this redemption from Christ has not been visited upon you. You, have, you need to be saved. You need to be rescued from your self-centered desire to live your life for you. Because the simple fact is, Jesus is the Lord and Savior. And you need to recognize that. Now, there's something that's said here to parents as well. It's, it's implicit. But I think of 1 Timothy 3, 4, which says of an overseer, he must manage his own household well. Listen to this. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Again, that don't read it in the terms of our culture to oppress them. But read it in the terms of Scripture to keep them in line behind his leadership. You remember in 1 Samuel, Eli, why did God discipline this father? Because though he complained about his son's disobedience, he did nothing to stop it. He did not get in their way. He grumped, but he didn't act. The command then for children to obey their parents assumes that parents have the task, the duty to set selflessly Others-oriented standards for their children. To set others-oriented standards for their children. It assumes that parents must hold their children accountable, expecting them to obey and disciplining them in some sense when they do not, as is appropriate to their age. When parents fail to do this, fail to set the standards, fail to enforce those standards, they are failing to instill one of the most fundamental lessons of Christian discipleship, and that is this, obedience to God. You're taking that discipleship opportunity and you're throwing it away because you're not sticking with what you've laid out and enforcing it. A child who refuses to obey mom and dad who is not trained to obey mom and dad is not going to magically begin following Jesus. It's not going to happen that way, generally speaking, unless God uniquely intervenes. But particularly as children age, we cannot control their will. There will be a battle of the wills. We cannot control their will. We don't want to do so. But we can continue to point them to their responsibility to do what is right and to hold them accountable. That, parents, is our duty. We have a massive challenge in this culture and that challenge is getting harder and harder because it is now understood widely that we should pursue a non-directive democratic parenting philosophy. That is the child... Though no one says this or even understands it, probably, the experts from long ago have laid this foundation that the child is innately pre programmed to develop naturally into everything that they should be. That they should then be allowed to find their own destiny. And we are to facilitate self discovery and self expression. We are not to resist. The flesh. That's not the agenda. The agenda is to let them discover themselves and express themselves. Now, when you're living in that kind of a culture, your job as a parent is to get out of your kid's way. To just put parameters around them only at the places where they're going to fall off a cliff. But in every other way, to be extremely patient with their constant self-expression. We've got to come to terms, Christian Americans, with the fact that God's Word crashes headlong into that program. And it makes very clear to us that when you brought a child into this world, you brought a sinner into this world. And that individual is going to be bent toward the flesh and displays of the flesh. It is our duty as parents to curb that, to steer that, to draw their attention to the fact that they need to obey God. Children, you're going to need God's power to do that and do it well. It's not going to come naturally. And I'm thankful in this church, we've got all kinds of room as parents, we know that, room to grow. But I'm thankful that we have a culture as a church Where children have respect for their parents and obedience is understood. How do I know that? Because I work with those kids. And I know how they treat me. They're not going to treat anyone in authority with respect and appreciation and cooperation unless somebody at home is talking to them about that need. Take heart, it's happening. And I thank God for it. Let's stay on track. Now, on the other side of this relationship is fathers. Verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Why fathers? Again, understanding that they were seen as the hub of the family. It certainly pertains to mothers who will support their husbands in this relationship, but it puts the responsibility squarely where it belongs on the father's shoulders. Fathers... Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. He's working very quickly here, and there's a lot that he doesn't fill in. But as leaders, as the head of their homes, they are to set a standard for their wives who are to support that if they are submitting to their husbands. And they will not, as a couple, he will not, as a father, provoke his children. The Greek word means to embitter or to enrage. Probably by the exercise of harsh and unjust punishment or by an overbearing exercise of authority or by ridicule or by neglect or something along these lines. When parents relate to their children this way, the children can become discouraged. The Greek word means to lose heart. It means to give up. It's that empty stare in the child that's just given up. They've just resigned to the fact that they're not as powerful as their parents and they're just waiting the day to get loose and run on their own. That's not the kind of relationship the parents are to have with children. Fathers, we have an important calling not only to issue directives and to discipline our children when they fail to meet those directives, We also have a duty to encourage and build up our children. We are called to love our wives. We are called to love our children. That is, we will live a life that is oriented toward them and willing to give whatever is necessary to them in love. We move to the third relationship of slaves and masters and we'll move through this fairly rapidly, but we do need to stop for a moment. We have to make some progress here in bridging the cultural gap once again. Because when we hear slavery, we have a particular view in mind. We have a particular context, a cultural setting. That was not the setting of the ancient world. It was radically different than our world. And we need to understand this. Nothing quite matches the master-slave relationship in our day that was true in their day. Paul probably speaks mostly of household slaves who would have lived in the family and been very much like a family member. They would have been like we might relate to a live-in guest of sorts or to an employee. Some slaves worked in mines and had miserable lives. Some were tortured. But very many others lived within slavery working at houses and fields, and were trusted partners in the family. In fact, it was not uncommon at all to find doctors who were slaves. They were free to live in their own homes, but they belonged to someone to fulfill the role of medicine. There were teachers who were slaves, and many slaves lived, in their, as I said, in their own homes and just reported to work every day. We would have seen them much more like employees in our culture. That's not to justify slavery in any way. And I think the Bible, in fact, destroys slavery. But we do need to realize the difference in context. Also, let's remember, and this is so crucial to us, when you read about slavery in the Bible, it has nothing to do with race. Absolutely nothing. They didn't see it that way. It, was, it had to do with economics. That was the issue. It had to do sometimes with the fact that you were on the wrong side of the battle in a war and you were now a slave and that that didn't usually go so well for those soldiers. But for many, it had nothing to do with race. It It had only to do with economic status. It was typically not a matter of bondage. And so many today are very troubled that the Bible doesn't stand up and say, Masters, let your slaves go free. We've got to recognize the very different context there. If a person had come to a church, like the church of Colossae, and said, Masters, let your slaves go free, the slaves might stand up and go, why? Well, don't do that to us. That was their livelihood. That was their security. That was their housing. That was their food. That was their life. Let us go. That We're going to take a real serious step down here. And many got along very well with their masters, like employers and employees do today now they didn't have the same freedom to just leave a job like we are free to leave a job but let's remember it was very different in that day so many slaves would not find that comforting secondly christians were a decided minority in the culture if they came out and said masters free your slaves it would accomplish nothing but trouble They did not see that as their agenda or the necessity. Slavery was ingrained in the culture. It was not the apostolic agenda to overthrow societal practices that gave structure to ancient life. As far as we know, it's possible that up to a third of the population of Colossae was in slavery. What they said, what the Christians said, is this has nothing to do with anything but the fact that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So the point was for them in that context, not free slaves. That would have made sense to no one. In their context, the call was to love your slaves. Be faithful to them. And to the slaves, there was a responsibility as well. Chapter 3, let me just say this. While some people ignorantly claim that the Bible endorses slavery, and they're almost always thinking of the slavery that we've suffered in this nation, which was horrifying... But why doesn't the Bible do this? The Bible's outdated. We need to dismiss it. We need to throw it out. And they throw out everything it says about children and parents and husbands and wives as well, right along with it. But we need to realize where Christianity is at this place and that what the Apostle is saying cuts the taproot of slavery. Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Notice this. where Here, there is not Greek or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian, Scythian slave or free. Those distinctions end when Jesus Christ is the Lord. We are all His subjects equally. And there's no individual that has any authority or right over another because of race or because of social status. No, we all serve. I mean, the taproot is severed right there. And those that did the most to end the kind of slavery that we know were motivated by what the Bible teaches. To the very contrary, the critics of Scripture would say the Bible is part of the problem. Well, of course, there were slave owners that claimed the Bible teaches slavery. They missed the whole point. There were others who didn't miss the point. And they used the Scripture and saw what was here to realize the horror, the wrong of the slavery that we've understood. So all of that aside, he now talks to slaves, not trying to stir up some revolt because it wouldn't even make sense to them, but he does say to them something that makes sense. The Lordship of Christ will transform the way you relate to your employers, your masters, whatever the relationship was. Slaves, obey in everything. Verse 22, those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Again, it's the believer's relationship with the Lord that supplies the motivation to submit to authority. Christ-like slaves were not to work diligently when the Master's eye was on them and then to cheat on the side when they weren't being watched. Rather, they were to fear the Lord. You see how the relationship with Christ radically affects their daily life. They will work differently because they know they're under the watchful eye of God at all times. Verse 23, Fearing the Lord, they are to know that whatever you do, we should work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Wholehearted endeavor is the kind of worker with which God is pleased. And that is the whole point. United through faith with Christ, Jesus becomes the One that we work to please. Knowing, verse 24, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The inheritance here, entrance into God's eternal kingdom, Entrance into God's family, it's not earned, but it's enjoyed by genuine believers. Those who are serving the Lord Christ. That's probably to be taken as an imperative. Serve the Lord Christ. That's who you're really serving when you're working. It's a response to the God who is there at all times. And so verse 25 for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Let's remember that God watches what we do and how we serve and how we are operating in this world. And there is an accounting before Him. We can't take everything from here. We're not dealing with slaves and lords here, thankfully, in our church. It's not an issue at all. And we can give God thanks for that. But I think what we do need to take here again is the radical orientation to life that is transformed by the fact that we relate to the risen Christ. That changes every relationship. And that, in our context, should change those of you who are bosses and have people who you are leading the way that you relate to them. Everything that you do is seen by Christ and you will give accounting to Him. As workers, everything that we do is not to get by with doing as little work as we can, get away with as much as we can in the negative side, but rather as I serve Christ in my work. This is how we should respond and be transformed. So he turns then to masters. One of the most horrible chapter breaks in the Bible comes right here. Chapter 4, verse 1. I don't know what the guy was thinking on this one. The chapters and verses are all added by somebody later. But there's some chapter breaks you go, ah, I can see one way or the other. Or be a hard, ah, I can see how he missed this. But this? This is supposed to go right with slaves. So, 4 verse 1 masters. Now, remember again the Greek word is lords. Treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Just as a husband is to love his wife who submits to him, so in the culture of this day, slaves must submit to you. Make sure that you deal with them justly and fairly and that you treat them as co-heirs of the grace of Christ. There's, I think, a distinct difference in the way God talks about husbands and wives and slaves and masters. That's another topic. Radical difference. One is connected to creation, husbands and wives. Slaves and masters is never connected that way in Scripture. They're simply dealing with a cultural reality. In that reality, masters, you need to remember that there's a Lord in heaven who watches the way that you treat the slaves in your home. He sees it. He knows and you will be accountable to Him. You have a Lord in heaven. Remember that. This warning was to temper their relationship. It also undermines certainly the institution of slavery by bondage. People may have seen great differences between slaves and masters, but Jesus is the master of both. He is the Lord who assigns our position in life and He stands as our judge in eternity. He is the one we must face. This passage has so much to teach us and I hope that we grasp from it. Maybe you've missed some things along the way. What do we take home with us? Jesus Christ's mastery, His Lordship, His victory over sin and death, His payment of my sin is to radically transform every relationship on earth. We could go, we can't write Scripture, but we could go from here and now add our own ideas. And we need, in fact, to do that. Paul is not covering every relationship. The fact that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord, the Master that we will stand before someday, should affect the way that citizens relate to magistrates, the way that we relate to the police force in our town. It should change the way that neighbors relate to neighbors and teachers and students relate it should change the way that we relate romantically between two individuals who are pursuing marriage or are interested in marriage someday. It should relate every relationship with every business that we, with which we do business. The bank, the store, wherever we go, in every relationship, it should be evident that Jesus Christ is our Lord. We live that way. We orient our life that way. Forgive the reference again to Martin Luther sequestered for his own safety for a time in the Wartburg Castle. Very aware of satanic oppression in that castle as he sought to take a position against the Holy Roman Empire and to speak for sanctification through faith in Christ alone. One day it got so intense and the sense of the presence of Satan was so real to him that he took his inkwell and threw it at Satan. And we, it's hard to hear that and not get a little bit of a smile on your face. It's like, well, did you see him? I mean, how do you know he's in that corner, not in this corner? We laugh a little bit at that, but I think a little bit of our laughter is an evidence that we are very dull to the spiritual battle that's going on around us. There is a spiritual battle in every relationship that we face. And adding to that in the other direction, we are also not very aware that the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning over every relationship. And so husbands take advantage of their wives when they're alone. And wives cut corners on their husbands when they're alone and children, when no one's watching, disobey what they know their parents want them to do. And bosses cheat on the employee and the employee cheats on the boss because we are dead to the fact that Christ sees everything. May we develop an awareness that we live out our lives in relation to people that Jesus Christ loves people for whom Jesus Christ died people who will stand not before our judgment but before Christ he is the Lord and I may speak to someone here today maybe to several maybe to far more than we would recognize as a church You'd say, He's not my Lord. He's not your Savior. You need to orient every relationship to the fact that Christ is the risen, conquering Lord. But you will not do that until you get your relationship right with Him. And if you are struggling in the relationships of your life, they are not thriving, they are not moving forward, There are all kinds of difficulties and troubles and frustrations that you are facing. That may be very good evidence that you have never come to know the salvation of Jesus Christ. Because when you know it, He changes your heart and He reorients everything toward His conquering, risen power. Pouring out His life into us that we might slowly be transformed into the likeness of the Christ that we will someday meet. And who having not seen, we strangely love. Let's bow for prayer. Father, may our love for Christ pervade every relationship. I know as we talk about such matters, there are some husbands and wives who undoubtedly need to have a long talk. There are some parents and children who undoubtedly need to have a long talk. And there are undoubtedly some dating relationships, some employee-employer relationships, some teacher-student relationships, and -and neighbor-and-neighbor relationships where there needs to be some serious change. I'm not aware of one. But God, what's in our own hearts, every one of us knows of many. Publicly, I speak to no one specifically, but to my own heart. But God, I pray that by Your Spirit, You would bring conviction and make clear right now what we need to change, what needs to be nurtured, Repentance that needs to take place. And ultimately, that you would draw to yourself that individual who has never become a child of God. The ultimate relationship is skewed and broken. He or she is in moral darkness. I pray that you'd turn on the lights and bring them into the wonder of being reconciled to God so that we relate in a God-honoring manner to one another. Do this work among us, we ask this day, in the name of Christ. Amen.